0: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, December the 15th, and you are very welcome
1: to the Inside Politics Wrap of the Week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me here in the Irish Times studio, which is really not as glamorous as it sounds, is political editor, Pat Leahy. Hi, Pat. Hello, Hugh. And also on the line, joining us from Brussels, is political correspondent, Jennifer Bray. Hi, Jen.
2: Hi, good afternoon.
1: How are the Christmas markets over there? Uh, having a couple of mugs of Glühwein?
2: <laughs> I haven't managed to get out yet, but the summit literally just finished there around five minutes ago. So who knows? I might get a half an hour or an hour going and imbibe some Belgian beers.
1: So yes, you are there for the summit, which has been taking place since yesterday. Lots of big discussions about Ukraine, uh, about the Middle East, about various other kinds of issues. you Leo Kirk quite prominent in his comments about Gaza?
2: Yeah, he was. He was. Um. So yeah, but here we arrived yesterday morning. Um, the summit was kind of being hailed as a historic one, really. And I think in some ways it was, and in other ways it, it wasn't to be. Uh, his his comments on Gaza were interesting. What he was basically saying was that the European Union is losing credibility. Uh, he talked about kind of the idea that younger people and younger voters in particular are kind of very much cognizant of the fact that the level of action coming from the European Union perhaps uh, is anything but inspiring. Um, And he talked about this a little bit this morning as well on his way in to the second day of the summit. You know, he was saying that even though the vast majority of European countries now favour a humanitarian ceasefire, and we saw that in, in a UN vote, albeit a non-binding vote, UN vote the other the other evening he was saying, be that as it may, there are some countries who believe that if they voted uh, in terms of that wording, that it would in some way curtail Israel's ability to target her- terrorists, um, Hamas. So uh, they went into the meeting today uh, to talk about the Middle East. Um, they're only just emerging now. I can see kind of people streaming out there now. Um, and so we'll find out what exactly they landed on in, in terms of wording. But there was an expectation very much that uh, the position would shift from uh last October's position which was a lot more conservative.
0: And Jen, sorry to jump in there, but did and I appreciate they're only finishing up there now, but I wonder do we know if they actually have a wording? I mean, I wonder was there a draft wording knocking around or have they failed to agree a wording because whatever about, you know, kind of agreeing a middle middle ground wording, not agreeing anything at all would be a real sign of division
2: it would be yeah I'm actually really not sure if they agreed a wording or not Um, I think that the aim of the game certainly was to come out with something a little bit more concrete Um, I know that the the one issue that Leo Varadkar was kind of fixating on a little bit on his way into the meeting was that even if they don't agree you know to call uh, as, a, as a block for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire that in the very least uh, the European Union can use some of its economic and political power to send a message to Israel that if they don't accept the need for a two-state solution, um, that Europe's relationship with Israel will not be the same again. I think they were the words that he used. So perhaps you'll see something political in that way if you don't see uh, an, an exact wording on on ceasefire. So
1: in parallel with all that, and in a way kind of it's almost proceeding alongside it in the politics of both the United States and Europe at the moment is the question of ongoing support for Ukraine, whether that's in the form of aid or in the form of these accession talks. There was a kind of 26 to 1 division yesterday on this with Hungary's Viktor Orban holding out but finally giving in on on the accession talks question.
2: Yeah, Um. Th- this was an interesting one because all the talk yesterday, <laughs> the first day of the summit and and a couple of the EU leaders on their way and doing the doorstep said this, that we're ready to go Uh, into the weekend. We're ready for the summit to go into Saturday, Sunday. I think I heard Leo Varagra even mention something about Monday and the hairs on the back of my neck stood up in a bad way. But no, Um. The the expectation was that this was going to be a really, really difficult conversation and that they weren't going to be able to come out of this meeting with an agreement to start accession negotiations uh, with Ukraine, effectively the start of, of of talks for Ukraine to join the European Union. Um, and then around half six, and there was kind of, pandemonium kind of in in, in the press area and (laughs) really like a a significant surprise I suppose I would say that they actually not only came to this decision and agreed but that they did it so early in the day Um, what actually happened in the end was that uh, the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban stepped outside the room he wasn't in the room when they had when they had the vote on allowing uh, the start of those accession negotiations. Um, so that happened around half six. Um, so that was the first part of the puzzle. That's what the first thing that Ukraine wanted from this summit. The second thing that they wanted was money. Basically, they wanted more money. Um, and what was on the table was firstly conversations around the European budget, and if they could clear that hurdle, then they could get to a position where they could agree to around fifty billion euros of loans and new funding to give that would be part of a budget top-up um and it would be until twenty twenty seven. They didn't actually agree that in the end. They stayed until two AM um, in the end it was Orban who, who vetoed that. They could they basically they couldn't win him over, much as they tried all day long. Um so they're gonna to have to come back now and have a special meeting in January, another council meeting, to try and agree that 50 billion. Now, what I will say is they don't actually have to get Uh, the kind of approval that they're looking for, what they wanted last night. They can actually go outside of the European treaties and have a deal amongst the 26 member states. So that would involve basically bilaterally giving um, loans and money to Ukraine as an agreement outside the usual mechanisms. That, I think, would mean Ireland coming up with the funds Ourselves, and I was trying to crunch the numbers a little bit earlier on to figure out how much that would cost. Now, these are back of the envelope sums, so forgive me if I'm wrong. I um, was running through them with a colleague, and it, it looks like it could be in around, given how much we contribute to the European budget, probably around 250, 260 million euro. Now, that would be over a period of, of five years. So, that is an option. I, I get the impression that they would rather obviously do this inside the European treaties, but if, if they continue to encounter resistance for more band, then I think they'll do that. And I have to say, it's remarkable being here. Um, It's my first time covering the the summit here in Brussels to see the outsized impact and influence that one man can have on this whole summit. And the fact, uh, and I'd say he loves it, honestly, but the fact that one person can hold up so much, uh, uh I think it's given them... Food for thought beyond the things that are on the agenda this for these two or three days.
1: Yeah, it says something about the power of the veto still in the, in the European Union. And of course, the internal dynamics of Europe are changing all the time. You know, Orbán used to have allies in Warsaw. The Polish mm-hmm. government has just changed this week. Donald Tusk is, has plenty of pals in Brussels. And so that dynamic has changed. There is a difference between 25 to 2 and 26 to 1.
2: Yeah, and it is interesting, isn't it? The return of, uh, the triumphant return of, of Donald Tusk to the EU. And yeah, that there was a, a former ally there kind of leaves, I suppose, Hungary a little bit more isolated on the European stage. He's um,
0: got a new ally in Slovenia, though. True. Slovakia. Yeah. Slovakia.
2: Slovakia. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting, really. But I think... Uh, You know, firstly, we'll see what happens when they come back in January. I think it they'd be disappointed that they didn't manage to come out of it with both the accession talks, however long that may take. I mean, sometimes it can take 5, 10, 15 years for somebody to actually join the European Union. You know, this is just the beginning of the beginning and there's huge conditionality even after this. So, But I think there will be disappointment that they got halfway there with uh, those negotiations and didn't get the money in the end.
1: Pat, can I ask you just a last question on this? Just returning to... to Gaza for, for, for a minute. I mean, I know we've said that Ireland isn't an outlier among EU nations, but it is among a small group of EU countries that has been more outspoken on the pro-ceasefire, pro-Palestinian side, I suppose you can say. And Leo Varadkar seems to feel that, uh, that it's morally necessary or politically wise to keep pushing at that door.
0: Yeah, I think he figures he's reflecting opinion at home, which is, I suppose, what all the leaders do to a greater or lesser extent. But... Um, I mean, I've rarely seen in all the time I've been covering politics, a foreign affairs issue or foreign policy issue that commands so much public debate and so much time in the doll. And what Leo Varadkar is hearing from the opposition all the time in the Dáil and indeed from some of his own coalition allies is the need to put more pressure on Israel to seize the bombardment of Gaza to allow humanitarian, medical, other aid uh, to get in to Gaza to alleviate the suffering of the Palestinians uh, on the ground there. That's the line he is pushing, but he is pushing it within an EU context. And, uh, y- you know, there, there, there was some to be interesting if There has been any, to to ask Jen, if there had been any sign of this sort of talk in in Brussels about individual member states acting unilaterally on Gaza um, because there has been some talk of that, including by the Tornish here. Jen, have you heard anything of that sort?
2: Um, Well, I think, I don't know whether this fits in with with that question, but if you look, um, and obviously not in Europe, but if you look to the UK, they're implementing um, travel ban now on Israeli um, Israeli settlers, and I think that this is going to be an important question that comes up at the doorstep, which I believe Leo Vrecker is doing right now, so you're getting all the live updates guys from <laughs> from Brussels. Um, so if we have any kind of similar move, uh, and we can actually do that, we don't need the uh, approval of the European Union whatsoever, um, the, uh, the UK when they were in the EU did this years before even. Um, so th- there is that action. Um, I'm not really sure, to be honest, I'm not going to lie, I'm not really sure what the situation is with other countries in terms of uh, unilateral action.
1: All right, we shall leave the Brussels meeting there for the moment. Let's just turn to domestic politics. This is our wrap of the week that we do every Friday. This is our final wrap of the week of the year because um, there isn't really active politics as such next week, Pat, is that right?
0: Thanks but to God, Hugh. No, it's all long lunches and present buying next week. So the year, <laughs> what was it like for you? Give it to me in 60 seconds. The entire year in 60 seconds. Well, uh, I mean, again, I suppose it was a year that was certainly the latter half was very much dominated by what was happening uh, all over the world. I expect that to continue next year in in a way with the American elections being something that will command an awful lot of attention, not just here, but, uh, but around the world. I suppose this time last year, if you cast your mind back and, you know, Hugh, I think we all know this answer isn't going to be 60 seconds, right? <laughs> i if you say if nothing. If you cast your minds back to this time last year, we were reflecting on the change in government. The first time this had ever happened. And, you know, one of the unique features of this coalition is that the, they had done the big switcheroo. They'd swapped... Uh, swapped places. The Taoiseach and had swapped places, the Minister for Finance and the Minister for Public Expenditure had swapped places. And we were kind of trying to figure out what that was likely to mean for the year ahead in 2023. And I suppose we all thought that it was going to mean that, you know, Micheál Martin, Fianna Fall would very much step back, not quite into the background, but they wouldn't be as... Uh, certainly as prominent as they uh, as they had previously been, and that Leo Veradker, having regained the Taoiseach's office after the hiatus of a few years, would step into the foreground and uh, and would benefit politically from that. But that's not really what happened. And while Mr Veradker certainly has been more prominent in our politics this year than he had been in the previous couple of years. There hasn't been a great political payoff for Fine Gael. And in fact, Fine Gael, it seems to me at this point, a year on, is more uncertain than it was this time last year, whereas things have settled greatly in, uh, in Fianna Fáil, I would say. For the other big party, Sinn Féin, it's had kind of a mixed year. I think it's... Uh, It pressed and pressed and pressed on the housing issue in the first half of the year. That took a bit of a backseat over the summer. It was missing its leader for a couple of months over the summer. She recuperated from some medical issues. She came back in the autumn and you could really see the effect that that had on Sinn Féin and thus showing how important Mary Lou Macdonald is is to Sinn Féin. But I think Sinn Féin have had uh, a difficult few weeks. I think they haven't benefited from the focus on law and order issues that came after the riots in Dublin. And I think in some respects, though, riots in Dublin may ha- may turn out to be Certainly one of the most important, if not the most important, political development of the year because I think it brings a focus on law and order and also, whether we like it or not, on immigration as a political issue and I think those two things will be two of the legacies from 2023. Well, congratulations, that wasn't 60 seconds but it was a pretty
1: tight four or five minutes so I think to do yeah, so entire That's the entire year. So roughly the length
0: of one of your questions, I suppose. Uh, right, well, get,
1: get ready for another one, Jen. I mean, in terms of what Pat was going through there, to take it kind of from the top, this question of last year's prediction that that Fine Gael would benefit from having uh, Leah Varadkar back at the, at, the, at the top of the table and that not coming to pass, Pat framed it for very much there in terms of, I think, it's fair to say, the performance of the leaders. So is it Leo Varadkar's fault that Fine Gael are not firing on all cylinders or is there something deeper, a deeper malaise within the party?
2: Interesting question. I think ultimately the book does stop with Leo Varadkar. I mean, you know, he is the leader of the party. It is up to him not only to kind of galvanise the organisation and to kind of rally the troops, but it's kind of also up to him to if he's going to do that, to kind of be showing those emotions himself. Like, I've been very struck this year by his demeanour, I think, um, throughout the year. I don't know whether it's because he did the job of Taoiseach before, and this is a second stint around, and he's just become so used to doing the job, and maybe it was more of a novelty before. I'm really not sure, but and I know journalists have actually brought this up with him and said, you don't really seem to have your heart in the game this year you know, what is that about? And, and he's always kind of expressed surprise and said, really, is that how it seems? And but, but it is, and a lot of people talk about it in Leinster House. And I do wonder why that is, because to me, it's really, really obvious. And I think it's really, really obvious to people within Fine Gael. I think Fine Gael's had not only a difficult enough year, not a terrible year now, let's be fair, but a difficult enough year because we've seen so many senior people within the party say that they are not going to run again. Um and uh, basically leaving leaving the ship and these would be people who were possibly quite close to Leverack or would have been maybe his right hand men and uh, possibly women and yeah it's just interesting I think there's a bigger question there for Finnegale about what long term impact will this loss of institutional knowledge, you know, you're talking about people who've been around a really, really long time. They know how it works. They know how to get things done. They know all the people who are involved. And I think that Fine Gael will struggle a little bit or possibly a lot with that, because the next question leading on from that is, who are the candidates who will replace these TDs who are not standing again? Will, you know, obviously there is a new um, gender quota um, Loss. We will probably see more women, which is great. Um, what kind of investment have they put behind these candidates to get them both media ready, but also ready for life in politics, if it's their first time? And how successful will they be with the voters when your individual brand recognition, your name recognition in your locality, as we know, is is a big deal. Um, and often that's half the battle. So I just wonder, for Finnegale, what will be the long term consequence coming up to the next election of that loss of, like I call it, kind of institutional knowledge. You know. Uh, experience basically.
0: There's another factor I think as well that we sometimes overlook and that's the sheer length of time that Fine Gael has been in office yeah. and will have been in office by the time it goes to ask voters to put it uh, to put it back into government for a fourth consecutive term and that is really unprecedented and you know, I think that... I think Fianna Fáil only managed it once, you know. Yeah, and in, Fianna Fáil managed it in, you know, a political environment and a landscape that was completely different to what we have at the moment. Fianna Fáil managed it in a, a, a period when, you know, we were in the old two-and-a-half-party system when the two big parties between them would be comfortably getting 80%-plus in general elections but that's not the case anymore you know and 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 I think that it that will be that will be a difficulty that Fine Gael faces at the next uh, at the next election and I am not sure how it gets around that I mean every incumbent government that runs for re-election its message is some variation of a lot done, more to do. It has to point to the future, but it's harder for... Fine Gael doesn't look very much like a very future-focused organisation right now. And I think that there will be a lot of hard thinking have to be done in the party over the course of the next six months or year, whatever it is, before the next election, to formulate a pitch to voters that revolves around not just the leader, but also his party that is firmly future focused, that doesn't run away from their record in government, but is future focused. And, uh, and I think that is difficult for them. We're going to
1: take a quick break. Before we do, just to remind you, just in case you didn't hear it at the top of the show, next week we will be recording our uh, annual Ask Me Anything uh, in advance of Christmas. We'll be running that over the course of the holidays. Ask me almost anything. No, you can really ask him absolutely anything and I'll make sure well, I, I will I'll do answer my best to make sure that, that that he answers most of it. All you need to do is email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. We do prefer to hear your dulcet tones, so if you can do it in the form of, a, uh, of an audio file, that is all the best, but just send it in to politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Try and get it in by the, by the start of next week, the 18th. That would be great. We'll take a break now. And we're back. Jen, Pat was talking in his um, improvised story of the whole of Twenty twenty three about Sinn Féin as well, and it's kind of a year of two halves sort of a thing with a kind of a break point during the summer with uh, Mary Lou McDonald's unavoidable unavoidable leave of absence. Uh, we, we've talked a little bit about this over the last couple of months, the last couple of weeks in particular. This idea that when the debate is about cost of living and housing, that's great for Sinn Féin. If it's about other things, not so much.
2: Yeah, very much so. I think if I look back at twenty twenty three, one of the stories of the of the year. Um, or certainly one of the most kind of important developments will, there are so many different aspects of it that involve Sinn Féin, basically. And I remember at the very start of the year, I can't remember the exact location, but it was a protest outside of one of the places where asylum seekers were being housed temporarily. And uh, at the protest, there were placards and pictures of Mary Lou Macdonald's face with the word traitor across it. And, um, and I remember kind of being struck by it because, you know, when you think about kind of the politics of protest, when you think about the things that people are, you know, in often cases rightfully angry about if it's the cost of living or whatever, um, you often think of it very much as anti, anti-government, anti-coalition. And here we have protests kind of popping up at the start of the year, very much annoyed with Sinn Féin, because Sinn Féin, as we know... Have taken a stance on immigration, and their their view on it basically has been, you do not protest, um, the asylum seekers themselves or or where they're staying. You know, it's not their fault. Basically, if you have an issue with government policy, you protest the doll, and you and and that has been their line since the very start of the year. Um, they haven't indulged. Maybe it might be an unfair word, but they haven't really indulged any kind of the sentiment that might exist uh, among certain parts of the party or, or voters for the party, um, very nationalist. can we talk about this before, they've kind of stayed on course with their message on migration is what I'm saying. And I think in a way, that, not, not saying the tide has turned on Sinn Féin, I don't think that, but I think there are elements where you can see that happening. Um, and I did wonder throughout the year what impact... Their, their stance on migration would have on the number of people who would vote for them, um, and I think we are seeing kind of a, a strengthening even in in the in the protests and, and kind of anti Sinn Fein rhetoric there. Uh, so that was an interesting thing. And then uh, towards the summer, Pat mentioned obviously Marilyn MacDonald was out for surgery and she came back, and they got a, they, they very much had a boost post uh, leading into the dull term coming in after the summer. Then the second part of the year, I think this is where we see. Not a new issue. It's not a new issue, issue of justice, um, issue of law and order. But I think it will become these two issues, the start of the year, immigration and the end of the year, justice, will feature very strongly in the next general election campaign. Because what the government are forecasting for 2024 in terms of new arrivals for asylum seekers, but also for Ukrainians, they had tre- uh, forecasts and trends that they have internally within the department, which showed that they expected anywhere up to the same level of arrivals that they had in the last year in 2023. And we can already see now there's around 150 asylum seekers sleeping rough on the streets. Some of them can't get access even to tents, I was reading this morning. This is very much a live issue, and I think it will become even more so next year. And I think the long and the short of it is Sinn Féin are comfortable when they're talking about perceived or actual failures of the government. Like if you take housing, I think you mentioned there, you know, they had their quarter three figures out for housing the other day. And like we can get so bogged down in all the different ways that the government massages the figures, and they do. Um, but the long and the short of it is they are nowhere near meeting their targets for this year as of now, and they did not meet their individual targets last year. So that's the ground on which Sinn Féin is comfortable. They can very much, and they have Owen O'Brien there, who knows everything inside out and, and back ways that's fine. But I think when they're talking about issues of justice, I think they're much weaker and they know it. During that debate on the confidence motion, um, I was actually watching from home uh, because number one, I had COVID and number two, I was on the early shift. And um, I was really struck just from watching the unease on some of their faces. They did not look comfortable. They didn't look happy. And a lot of them looked like they were thinking, who's fucking idea was this, basically. Um, so I think it's just been such an interesting year for them. And I know for a fact, and then none of them will say it out loud, that some people in the party genuinely think we should be doing better. We should be doing better than we are.
1: Mm, that's That's very interesting indeed. There's a real paradox underlying that Pat, which is that the two issues which have risen up the agenda in the second in the second half of the year, in theory, for most oppositions, they'd be a great stick to beat the to beat the government with. A lot of people believe that the current government hasn't done everything that it needs to do in relation to law and order. A lot of people think that it hasn't handled the provision of of accommodation and services to to migrants uh, well enough. But Sinn Fein, partly because of its own history and its own record, its own culture. Is is particularly badly placed to take advantage of it, which begs the question of who does take advantage of it,
0: or if anybody takes uh, advantage of it. Yeah, I I I think I think you're right about that, and you know we should be clear that the you know such research as we have doesn't indicate a causation between a little bit of a wobble in some polls last uh, in recent weeks for Sinn Féin and the prominence of the justice issue. But the two are certainly happening around the same time. And it does suggest something of uh, of a link to me. And if you cast your mind back to the last quarter of last year, 2022, when the, uh, when the, the trial in the Special Criminal Court... Uh, was ongoing and the links uh, that between Mary Lou MacDonald and the former Sinn Féin councillor Jonathan Dowdall who was the witness in the Gerry uh, Hutch trial in that court when that was taking up an awful lot of air time airspace public uh, public attention we saw another little drop off in Sinn Féin's support at that stage even though we were in the teeth of a cost of living Crisis uh, at that point, and we should be clear: like, what well, we haven't we haven't seen on either of those occasions, end of last year, or the end of this year, a slump in Sinn Fein's polling fortunes. It's not a political collapse or anything like that, but it is a little bit of a pullback, and it does suggest that, you know, a maybe there's a ceiling for Sinn Fein, or b that ceiling descends a little bit when. These sort of issues are front and centre in the public's attention. And you may be sure that the government parties are taking note of that.
1: It also makes, because I I kind of feel, I felt this when we were doing our live show a couple of weeks ago, Gem, that I was, first of all, this was a few days before the riots. I was going to start off by introing and saying, this was the most boring year ever, isn't it? It's just a kind of an appetizer for the big bang of all the elections and everything that are going to happen next year. And this feels a little bit like a harbinger of the way things might go next year, that, that perhaps some of those who thought that if Sinn Féin's inexorable rise since the 2020 election could, continued, that there was a there was a possibility of a Sinn Féin-led left-wing coalition with other small left parties. That starts looking a little bit less possible now.
2: Yeah, it does. I, I suppose maybe. I mean, look, so much is dependent. Uh, election, a general election campaign in and of itself is a dynamic event and it's almost like a, a microcosm in time. You know, so much depends on the economy and um, actual just events you can just not foresee uh, at the time. So much depends on that. Um, but if we were to have it, let's say, in spring or next summer or next autumn. Yeah, it's it's hard to see that route. And the other thing as well is that it's a different question, but it's kind of related. If you look at Fianna Fáil, the kind of year that they've had, really interesting Lazarus-like recovery for Michonne Martin, who for ages had people sniping and tallying imaginary votes of who might be the next leader. He's had a really good year. Again, he had a good year last year. He handled COVID relatively well. Um, I think people agree on that. And he had a good year. And and the reason why it's important is because it's very hard to see a situation whereby Sinn Féin, who when they need the numbers, if they get that far, um, which they very well might, and if they need those numbers, it's hard to see a situation whereby when they look to Fianna Fáil, a Micheál Martin and Mary Lou Macdonald coalition. And we know how he feels about... Shin Fein he doesn't hold back in the doll. In fact, I would say he's a stronger performer than a lot of the Finnegaers, although you have Jennifer Carl McNeil coming up hot on Simon Harris's heels there. But I just wondered the impact of his standing in Finafall. the fact that he is safe for now. What impact does that have on the future comp- potential conversations between Sinn Fein and? Fall. Like I'm, what I'm saying is, would they need another leader to get that deal done. done? You know,
1: that's a subject that we will definitely return to as we move on into into the new year. Um, as always, on Friday we like to pick articles which caught our fancy from IrishTimes.com over the course of the week and to recommend them to you, our listeners. Pat, you were reading Fintan O'Toole's column.
0: Yeah, Fintan's column on Tuesday, and he was pretty scathing about the um, government's planned referendums which it uh, formally announced uh, this week. The legislation was tabled uh, in the doll late on Thursday night before the adjournment until mid-January and uh, I, 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 I don't know if in the piece in, in front of me It was hard-hitting, I think it's fair to say. He was not impressed. Essentially, it was, you know, this is is worse than doing nothing, uh, I, Mm. I think is what he was saying. And I just have a slight feeling that this may turn into a massive banana skin for the government because there's other straws in the wind as well. Yesterday I saw a statement from the Congress of trade unions and unlike Vinton's article, I actually do have that in front of me. And it was from Congress General Secretary Owen Reedy and he says, you know, the welcome the aim of the proposed amendment to remove sexist and dated language in relation to women's role in the home, but he has a failure to follow the advice of both Citizens' Assembly on gender equality and the Joint directors Committee on gender equality to include both care within the home and the wider community is a lost opportunity for the value of care in all its forms. And he says the Executive Council of ICTUs, the Congress of Trade Unions, uh, says that they will con- they would consider their position on the referendum and revisit the discussion in the new year, which is what a lot of the NGOs have said as well. Now, if you're Roderick O'Gorman or our government as a whole and you announce this referendum, what you really want is the NGOs that have pressed for this, like the Women's Council and, uh, and so forth, and Congress, you know, big civic society organisations, you want them coming out and saying, this is great, we'll vote for this, we'll campaign for it, Uh, we think it's a great idea. That's very much not what they're saying. And if you think about it, right, in the background before that announcement was made, I assume that officials from Roderick O'Gorman's department have been onto these organisations trying to encourage them to come out uh, in... And failing. uh, And clearly clearly failing. And I just wonder, you know, it's a kind of almost rule of Irish politics that a whole bunch of people, maybe 30% of people, will vote up against any referendum... And if turnout amongst what you might think would be the natural supporters of a measure like this is suppressed, then... And this is in the absence of any polling, but I I just... It just has a slight bang of a banana skin. Uh, because there is criticism from the left and probably
1: resistance from the right. And there is still, you know, a social conservative vote out there, which we've seen in the various social issue, you know, referendums. Yeah. You put that together, as you along say... Along with all those guys who vote against who just anything. want to punch the government. And, and the, you put that together with apathy and things can start looking a bit ropey. Yeah, I think What so. do you think, Jen?
2: Yeah, it's so interesting. I, I agree with Pat. I think it really does have the potential to be a banana skin. Um, you know, and also there's a danger for the government that if they don't get their uh, campaign right in terms of information campaign and explains, particularly in terms of, I think Finton was writing about the clause on care and the fact it recognises the role that a carer, you know, their, their contribution to society, not what society gives to the carer. And also it's still within the home. It's not outside to the wider community. And I just wonder if we get to next year and there is kind of you know a a general anti government sentiment that there might be a feeling of give the government a lash, who do you support more carers who deserved a better clause or the government who made hames of this there's a there's a danger there
1: okay, uh, what did you pick
2: okay i <laughs> I picked bear with me, right. I picked an article by Kevin Rafter and Don Wheatley in Monday's Irish Times. And they're writing about a new DCU report called Irish Journalists at Work, right? And the headline's talking about how journalists, basically journalists are resilient and fed up. (laughs) They didn't use the word fed up, but I'm summarising their findings. I'm going to tell you just a very short story now, Okay, So this is from the summit. So part of Kevin and Dawn's story, they're talking about how a huge amount of journalists are under time pressure and how this is bringing a lot of additional pressure and demand. So now we have to... Could
0: you to, hurry up with this story, please? So please.
2: now we have to lash... <laughs> exactly, thanks, Pat. Proving my point. Um, so now you have to lash everything online, basically, whereas it used to be just for print. And, and you know, it's stressful. Like last night at half six when they announced, oh, actually, we're going to start these talks with Ukraine. You drop everything and you just lash out an article as quickly as you can to get it up online so that you're up there with the other competitors. You don't have time to write a whole essay. Anyway, I got an email this morning from a woman and it was so vicious. She was basically saying, you know, you are uh, lazy. uh, All you do is rehash press releases. You don't probe anything. You don't question anything. You don't highlight the relevant facts. This smacks of vanilla that comes from the mainstream media. You're full of PR spin. Oh, my God, it went on and on. And her issue was that in putting up that snap, basically that quick piece online that I had neglected to put in all this historical context, And I just responded and said, if you read the actual front page of the Irish Times today, you will see that we have a very detailed piece with all that information in it. This is a live snap that we have for online. And she wrote back, oh, thanks very much. Look, that's fine. I'm just saying, I agree. There's huge pressures amongst journalists. And this is my plea to the Irish Times readers. Please be kind. It's Christmas.
1: (laughs) Please be kind, be kind. Yes, indeed.
0: Leave yeah. Jen alone. Leave me alone <laughs> I think, I think alone, <laughs> I think
1: that's a plea from the heart. That's be fair. Something that may cheer you up a bit, Jen, because that really sounds a bit uh, a bit awful, that's is fine. that they're,
0: well, they're, they're, this was the, Just to dwell on that for, for a moment, okay. For me, wasn't this the research that found that the vast majority of journalists were of a left-wing disposition? Two
1: out of every three, I think, are thereabouts, wasn't it? So there was something 67% or something like that, Jen? I actually um,
2: didn't see that finding, but I did see your email about it, Hugh, and I did start yeah. laughing. It's really weird. I never think of myself as left right or anywhere in between I don't know why obviously don't know myself is, is, very well is, is
1: that your experience having held various senior positions in, in, in the media over the years Pat that most of them are on the left?
2: Uh,
0: yeah I think Ireland wouldn't be unusual in that mm-hmm. actually yeah um, Why do you think that might be? Well as Stephen Fry once said uh, it's so frustrating why are all the clever people left wing? But uh, I don't necessarily <laughs> I don't necessarily agree with that uh, but uh, uh, I I I'd say that's a, a series of podcasts to investigate the bias of the media and their um, the perceived biases, the actual biases, the reasons for them, and what we should do uh, about oh, great. them.
1: My list is stocking up for next year. Getting better. It's looking it's, it's it's looking better and better already. I was going to say, you know, that my I I have a cheerful line to finish on because Joe Humphreys, who does our philosophy column uh, every Monday, the headline for his column this week was good news. Human existence may not be entirely pointless after all, and I think we can all agree that's good. Of he talks to uh, somebody who's uh, in favor of cosmopsychism. Apparently, the yeah. universe is the universe is so well ordered, mm-hmm. and the series of coincidences which led to um, the fact that you and I and Jen are sitting here chatting away in a and we're able to breathe, and we'll be able to eat later, and the universe all works around us sort of like clockwork is a sign that there is some meaning. Yeah. somewhere or other. Um, that, it is or, that it is ordained. That I it is don't know ordained about ordained. Some, yeah, there's a resistance to a religious interpretation yeah. in Joe's piece, as, as saying you would it's expect. So, That's because so of all those fine-tuned. left-wing journalists. <laughs> is that
2: what Jen? He was saying it, 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 it's so fine-tuned, the universe, that it can't be just by chance. And he also had a line in his piece, which I loved, where he talked about how we're evolving towards... These aren't his words, I'm heavily paraphrasing. We're evolving towards perhaps something even greater. I love that.
1: Uh, but, well, I mean... After that, I, I can say nothing further. Yeah, Let's leave it on that. And yeah, uh, On that exalted... like slowly. Be, be, <laughs> behave yourself there, Pat. On that exalted <laughs> note, we, we are going to leave it. Thanks very much to Jen and to Pat. Our producer is Declan Collin. Our engineer is JJ Vernon. Uh, we'll be back with you after the weekend. Until then, thanks very much for listening.